verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Well, good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here at church. It's great to have you with us as we finish off our eight weeks in the book of Ephesians, as it unpacks over the first three chapters the glorious riches bestowed on all who are included in Christ as they hear the great news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and believe. And we've seen as Ephesians unfolds how we're to respond to this just how central the church of God is in his great plan to unite all things together on heaven and on earth under Christ. God displays his manifold wisdom in the heavenly realms as every force of evil looks down on God's church here on earth today as they see people who know of God's love, who have every spiritual blessing in Christ knowing that they can approach God with freedom and confidence because of what Jesus has done for them. As they look down and see Christians living together in a new community marked by faith, hope and love, with radically other person-centred relationships marked by loving service as we grow to maturity together in Christ. Yet I don't know if you're uh, like me at all, as you see this extraordinarily beautiful picture of what the church is called to be, 
Sometimes we have to recognise that our present experience uh, can disappoint at times. It's a bit like that, you know, disconnect when you see the beautifully food-styled Hungry Jack's Whopper up on the board at Hungry's and then you unwrap what's in the pack. I think I've got a a photo there up on screen (laughs) showing the difference between the two. And Grace now understands for the first time why I came home wanting to cook burgers on Friday night (laughs) after putting that slide together. Why is it, though, that in a church with such a high calling, called to unity, that our world often sees weaker churches racked by division and conflict? Why is it with such a radical call for kind of other-person-centred living Do only some get a good taste of that, yet others still feel quite isolated and alone? Why is it that we can walk out of the building on a Sunday confident of God's grace to us, determined to put to death an area of sin in our lives, yet stumble and fall during the week and have a hard time holding on to our assurance? Why is it with such good news to be shared that death has been conquered by an all-powerful Jesus through his death on the cross and resurrection to life who can reconcile anyone on the planet to a holy God, why is it then that so many of us find evangelism such a challenge? In short, why does church feel so hard at times? And more importantly, is there any hope? Can we expect more? Can we make progress towards a more beautiful, more unified, compelling and fruitful experience of our life together? Well, fortunately for us in the book of Ephesians, the answer is yes, we can. Today's passage gives us spiritual insight from God into the nature of the battle for the church to live up to its calling as we heard in that sort of great hinge in the middle of Ephesians, urging us as the church together to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. And as well, this passage shows us that God has provided everything we need to live in such a way that communities like ours, both here at the RSL and right around the world today, can display God's manifold wisdom in the heavenly realms. So let's get to it. There's an outline in your leaflet along with our Bible reading from Ephesians 6. And you'll note just at the bottom of the outline today, I thought I'd draw your attention to a resource that I found super helpful. Uh, It's a commentary by a guy called Simon Austin. It's wonderfully well uh, pitched for anyone at the church to be a great addition to your bookshelf. But you'll also see in the outline there, I think I've split up today's passage in uh, three ways as we consider the challenge of being the church today, we're told to be strong, there is a battle, stand firm, there is a way, and pray, there is a need. So first things first from verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. As we'll see through this passage, uh, terms are used here that have come through, have been sort of great themes running through Ephesians, so that the careful reader doesn't have to kind of speculate uh, what it means. So we're encouraged here, for example, to be strong 
in God's mighty power. The same power that we're told back in chapter 1 is made available to us who believe. The same power and strength which God displayed as he raised Christ from the grave and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. The same power we're told already in Ephesians is at work in our inner being by God's Spirit that we saw in uh, chapter 3 and is at work in us and in the church today. And we're told in today's passage that we have access to this power, verse 11, by putting on the full armour of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. And this passage reveals something to us that we could not simply deduce by looking at our world through observation. This is a God-given revelation that shows us the spiritual reality behind our struggles to live as the church God calls us to be, as we seek to walk together in a new way, befitting of God's high calling for his people. We're told here we do so in the face of evil and that we are not standing on neutral territory. The devil actively opposes all that God creates in the church. In the language of Ephesians so far, Satan has already been mentioned twice. Back in chapter 2, verse 2, it was revealed that every person on the planet either does or used to live under his authority. In the great rallying call for us to give ourselves wholeheartedly to God's great gospel project in the church from Ephesians 4, we're told not to give the devil a foothold among us. Now, I usually don't have a lot of direct quotes in sermons, but uh, the book I mentioned before, when I read its chapter on this one, I thought it was one of the best chapters uh, that I've read in a Christian book. So I thought to try and put it in my own words, I'll only make it less. So here's a longer than usual direct quote uh, from me up on screen. We're tying all this together. We're told it should not surprise us, therefore, that evangelism is so difficult. It requires the resurrection power of God to change our status from being objects of wrath under the authority of Satan to being children of God spiritually raised with Christ. That power is manifest in the gospel. We were included in Christ and therefore spiritually raised with him when we heard the word of truth. Equally, it should not surprise us that living as church is so difficult. Once we've become a part of God's people with a radically new set of relationships marked by love and service and unity, it will be those very relationships which Satan seeks to destroy, which is why we give him a foothold when we live in any way which is inconsistent with being a part of God's new humanity. When we rightly live as God's new creation, the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms look at the church and see the wisdom of God in operation. If you're here today just checking out who Jesus is, please know that no one here who is a disciple of Jesus, a Christian, thinks that we are 
you know, somehow cleverer than others who think we can understand the world, its problems, its remedies, just because we're a little bit smarter. No, it's the exact opposite. We don't think that we have a status of being right with God, able to approach him one day with freedom and confidence. We don't think that because we've, you know, ticked enough boxes or on some unseen list or think we're better than others somehow. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Because we're told here someone only becomes a Christian because God has graciously unleashed the same power he used to bring Jesus back to life in us, in our lives. That happens, whether uh, it's something long past or a recent part of your story or something you're still wondering might happen in the future. We believe that we come to know Christ and are made right with him when we hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus and believe it with all of our heart. Something done by God's power that can only be done by God's power. If you're sitting here sort of wondering today, should I kind of dig into this more, just think about it logically for a moment. Reconciliation with God, eternal life, no fear of death, joining the most significant movement in history, the church, these are all incredibly good things if you're sitting here wondering if this is true. Ask yourself on a purely logical analysis, why would you not want to give everything to find out whether this is true or not? Ephesians tells us there's something else going on in the background. There are greater powers at work against you. So my encouragement to you would to be sceptical of your scepticism. And I invite you to join us at our next Life series where we can explore this together or perhaps set you up with someone to read through a gospel account of Jesus' life one-on-one. Because logically, why wouldn't you? But also don't fall into despair thinking this is all beyond you or there's this uncertain battle between good and evil. Ephesians tells us that Jesus is seated above the heavenly realms where evil resides. He has complete and utter authority and unlimited power. So ask him with an open heart to reveal himself to you. For the Christian, however, I think we see evil's undermining of the church and what God is creating there quite frequently and we get used to it. I think we are undermined at any time when we let relationships, kind of tensions fester in the church and we don't show people the same grace that God has showed us. I think we see evidence of it as we let the world's priorities creep into our lives in a way that kind of crowds out God's call on us to lovingly care for, serve and mature our brothers and sisters in Christ as we proclaim this immensely good news of Jesus together. We see it undermine us when we let ungodliness go unchecked in our personal lives as Jamie brought uh, out a fortnight ago. 
We see it undermine us when we live inconsistently with our faith uh, in our marriage, as parents, as children, in the workplace, as we touched on last week. But I think one of the greatest evidences of a church losing this battle and being undermined is when the word of God is devalued amongst us. Because Ephesians tells us, chapter 2 verse 20, that it's the word of God that is the foundation of the church. And it is God's means to help us become what we're called to be as we obey the word of God and minister to one another, growing up to maturity in Christ through the word, becoming wiser through the word. And that playing out in our life together as tangible acts of love unity and service. We're soberly reminded in Ephesians 4 that take God's word away, well, we're as vulnerable as infants being blown about in a storm this way and that. So be strong. There is a battle. Yet as challenging as that spiritual battle may seem and as necessary, I think, as it is for us to know that we're in such an unseen battle... It need not daunt us. Verses 13 to 17 tell us how to stand firm. There is a way. We are told there, Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with, and then Paul goes on to list off the various pieces of spiritual armour. It's often been said that he, he might have used this illustration as he kind of looked on to the Roman guards that imprisoned him and kept him in chains. But I suspect Paul chooses the army illustration as someone who's extremely well versed in the Old Testament scriptures. Isaiah, for example, speaking prophetically about this coming king, Messiah, with Paul seeing that this has been fulfilled in Jesus, was, I would think, more likely his inspiration. There's a couple of verses there for the screen. Uh, where's the first one's Isaiah 11, verses 4 to 5. We're speaking of this coming king. We are told, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, and with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Or Isaiah 59, for example. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And when you look at it closely, and this has never really sort of occurred to me until spending some time on it this week, all these bits of armour that we see listed off to us are things that are either kind of revealed to us in the good news of Jesus or belong to us as those who are in Christ. So take the belt of truth, for example. Each person across time and across our world was included in Christ, brought into his eternal family, the church, when they heard the word of truth, as we were told back in chapter 1. And as we get to chapter 4 in instructed how to live uh, in light of this truth of the gospel, we're told to speak the truth to one another in love, 
to live according to the truth of Jesus. And as part of the process of being made new by God through his spirit, we are told to put off falsehood and speak truthfully. So there's just a a quick sample of the many ways truth is kind of woven into the fabric of Ephesians, hence we are instructed to put on the belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness reminds us both of what we have been made in Christ and what we are called to be. We've been made right with God, made alive in Christ even when we were dead in sin, made children of Christ even when we stood against God as enemies. We were raised with Christ though deserving of wrath. So it's right to say our righteousness is something being given to us by Christ but it's also who we are called to be in Christ. As Ephesians 4.24 says to us, put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so as Christians, we have the continual process of putting off old practices as we dress ourselves anew. Knowing that the righteousness that Christ has won for us as our breastplate remains in place. So we undertake this great process of transformation of which we stumble and fall in from a position of absolute freedom because the penalty of sin has been paid for. So we do it knowing that we are people set free lest we fall into despair. Verse 15 tells us that we are to have kind of feet shod with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And as chapter 2 made clear, Jesus brings both true peace with God and he brings us peace with one another. So as people who know God's plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, we are told to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace as a community that models the outcome of the peace of the gospel as we proclaim it to a world that longs for such peace. So you can see why we're told here that Satan schemes against the church. So stand firm, there is a way. And in addition to all this, verses 16 and 17 tell us, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We're told here that those fiery arrows sent at us are extinguished upon the shield of one faithfully trusting that Christ alone has won our salvation. And as the church rightly wields the word of God, the sword of the spirit, it is God's means and what enables us to become mature, to stand firm in unity as we obey the word. It is our offensive weapon. As our parents and our youth and kids ministry teams teach the word, they're enabling our youth and our kids to stand firm. And as we prepare to plant a church next year, 
and long to keep here at Kernelite Gardens vibrant and growing. As I reflected this week, I thought Jesus has gifted our community mightily in word gifts. With the quite extraordinary preaching gifts continuing to develop not only in Cam and Jamie, but in the people they are developing, in Adam and Aaron. We've also got Philip and Luke who are pretty handy with the word as well. And I know Jamie has been working on great plans to continue to develop more and more great Bible study leaders next year. Both current and future leaders are key in helping us to stand firm. Through Jesus' victory on the cross, through Jesus' gifting of the church worldwide, including our church here, Jesus has provided for us a way, so stand firm. Be strong, there is a battle. Stand firm, there is a way. And finally, pray, there is a need. Verse 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And Paul has already modelled for us, as we've said a few times through this series, in chapters 1 and 3, prayers that I think really capture the Spirit-filled person's prayerful concerns. I would say they are truly church-building prayers. And as we prepare to plant again in February next year, as our network has another two or three uh, in uh, the making next year as well, and as we think about our gospel-hearted brothers and sisters in Christ in the wider Anglican church, people like Mike Russell and their new evening service at McGill, and as we think wider still of the warmly encouraging brothers and sisters in Christ that we have at both City Light and the City Reach families of churches, as we think of the many more churches that we support globally via the, mission, uh, the Church Missionary Society and beyond to any place where the gospel is being proclaimed faithfully, what a great thing to pray for all of them and to model our prayers on Paul's prayers in Ephesians giving thanks for them, to never cease praying that God the Father may give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know him better, that they may grasp the hope to which they have been called, that they may rejoice in being given every spiritual blessing in Christ and that together we might call on God's immense resurrection power to be at work in the church, helping us to be the church we're called to be. Straining forward together, calling on God to make us all mighty within by his spirit to help us live a life individually and corporately that is worthy of our calling in Christ. Pray there is a need because in our own strength we cannot do it. None of us can say we've got this. So pray. There is a need for these kind of church-building prayers. And as our minds kind of grapple with the enormity of all of this, Paul concludes his letter by reminding us that amongst this enormous task given to the church to, 
to live up to our calling and display God's wisdom in, in heaven and on earth. That it moves forward through prayer for real people that we know and relate to on a very personal level. Tychicus in verse 21 is dear to Paul and he longs for the church in Ephesus uh, to know, Paul longs for them to know how he's going so he sends Tychicus to him that they may know what he's doing and that he may be a very personal encouragement to them. But also Paul, the great church planter, the apostle, longs for personal prayer too. And for someone who's in prison and in chains, who could have given quite the lengthy prayer list, I'm sure, again, what a great model he is, as he simply asks for prayer, that he might be given the words so that he might fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Being the church God calls us to be in the heat of this unseen spiritual battle reveals to us this is hard. Make no mistake. So be strong in God's mighty strength. There is a battle. Stand firm together, for in Christ there is a way. And pray for all the Lord's people, because there is a need. Let's do that together now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the many things that you reveal to us in Ephesians, things that we could not discern by observation of our world. We praise you and thank you that for all who have placed their trust in you, that we together have every spiritual blessing in Christ and we are people called to live for the praise of your glory. Might you help us to grasp uh, these things more deeply and the emotions to flow from that, from the heart, so that our praise might be both genuine and heartfelt. Lord, we um, just acknowledge the high calling that you've given the church to be the people who display in the heavenly realms your manifold wisdom as we come to you knowing of your love for us shown through Christ as uh, we pursue peace, unity, hope, love, growing to maturity together as your people. Please help us to do these things uh, increasingly in ways that bring glory and honour to you. And for the times where we feel let down or we let down others, may those spur us on to love one another more deeply from the heart and to pursue the unity of which you've called us as a prelude for our world of seeing what it means for your great plan to bring all things in unity uh, under Christ. Please help us to be the church you've called us to be corporately and please help that to ring true in every other facet of our life and our homes and our workplaces and in our communities. And as we appreciate that we do not do this from uh, neutral ground. Please help us to be strong in your mighty power. Please help us to stand firm by putting on the spiritual armour that you give us.
And please help us to continue to pray these these broad, other person-centered, gospel-focused, church-building prayers that the Apostle Paul models for us so beautifully in Ephesians. And might we do this all so that we are a people who live for the praise of your glory. And it's in Jesus' precious and very powerful name we pray. Amen.